Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. What are we to do when we are trapped in our homes? When life has separated us from one another, from the people we love, from the real, tangible comfort and joy that the presence of other people brings to us? What are we to do when we are afflicted by loneliness, by our separation from other human beings? Last week, we talked about how the Christian faith, Paul says, is able to rejoice in afflictions, to take confidence in suffering. And we wrestled with this difficult teaching and, and, and came down on, on the answer of, it's not because we know the specific answer as to why a particular suffering might be happening or affliction might be happening, but because we know that through suffering, faith is conformed to the image of Christ who suffered. Christians can rejoice or take confidence in their suffering of mind, of body, of community, not because of some greater good, but because of the power of God, which is made perfect in weakness and in suffering. The God who can and will use suffering and who will never go away, whose word and whose promise will outlast any and all suffering that is brought upon us, whose comfort will outlast any isolation or any loneliness as it conforms us to the image of Christ. But I can imagine that at a time like this, I can Someone might say, well, fine, pastor, okay, I'm supposed to take confidence in my suffering. Well, what do I do when it's week two of this quarantine and isolation and the loneliness just kind of washes over me? Or when the grief of a lost loved one consumes me or anger at what someone else has done to me hinders and, and, and controls my heart? What do I do when fear and worry and doubt overwhelm me? When the people that I need to talk to aren't there anymore? I mean, it's all well and good that we can talk about taking confidence in suffering when we see its eventual outcome. But how do we do, how, what do we do, and how do we handle the midst of suffering, the loneliness and the loss and the overwhelming power of grief and isolation that overcome us? What does it look like to take confidence in suffering in the midst of it? To answer this question, we have to turn to the book of Psalms. We must listen to the prayers of those who are faithful in the past and hear in their voices, hear what faith sounds like in the midst of suffering and loneliness and loss. Psalms bring us into the real darkness, not fake or pretend darkness, but into real darkness, into real confusion, as someone who was holding on to God's promise speaks honestly to God in the face of many events that seem to make God's promises impossible. We meet this the psalm that we're going to reflect on today comes to us from David, who was no stranger to suffering and loss. He had been anointed by a prophet of God to become the king over all Israel when he was a young man. He didn't ask for this. He didn't try to pursue it. God simply found him as a shepherd watching the family flocks, and he anointed him, filled him with his spirit, and sent him on a journey to become the king of Israel. God empowered him for great acts that brought him out into the public eye and closer to the throne. He became known as a household name, defeating Goliath and winning great battles and marrying a princess. People said, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And yet all that had fallen away when Saul, the king, the one in power, recognized David as a threat and tried to kill him and drove him from his court and from his home and family. And so David, God's anointed, was now on the run, a hated and a hunted man, separated from his family and friends. He thought he might find some protection in a, an, an enemy village of Gath, an enemy of, of Saul, under the, the, the presence of King Achish. But David's 
reputation preceded him. His grand report of being the one who slayed tens of thousands while Saul only slayed thousands. Well, Achish found out about it, and he began to see David as a threat. And David could only escape by pretending to be a madman and drooling all over himself and convincing Achish that he couldn't possibly be a danger. And so he fled from there and found refuge only in a cave, a cave called Adullam. And there from that cave, alone, tired, hunted, isolated from the world outside by threats, he prayed. He did what faithful do in the face of faithful people do in the face of suffering. He prayed. And we find this prayer in Psalm 142, which the subscription to the psalm invites us to hear from his lips as he was sitting alone in the cave of Adullam. And we're going to go through this psalm today because it importantly answers our question, how does faith pray in the face of suffering? And I want to sum up the whole answer in this one sentence, and we'll come back to the sentence and we'll take it apart. But this is the sentence. In the face of suffering, faith speaks to God its pain and confusion and confesses God as its salvation and hope. In the face of suffering, faith speaks to God its pain and confusion and confesses God as its salvation and hope. Verse 1 of Psalm 124 says it, dramatically, emphatically even, faith speaks to God. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. The Hebrew here makes it unmistakable that this is not silent prayer. With my voice, right at the beginning of the sentence, twice in a row, he is speaking to God. Prayer is not a mere glance heavenward, nor is it a turn toward the inner recesses of the conscience or the, uh, it's not an act of introspection. It's a speaking a speaking to a real person, a person outside yourself. And though it, of course, involves moments of silence and meditation as we turn away from all the other voices that are uh, surrounding us, prayer is consummated in verbal, audible exchange in which our heart comes out our mouths into the world, speaking, making, changing things. Faith speaks to God, and we call this speaking of faith prayer. And because it's faith, it speaks honestly. It speaks truthfully. Faith speaks the truth, including the truth about how we feel, including the truth about what is wrong. David uses his voice not to simply to shower God with praise or to, to repeat pious trivialities. He does not dismiss his suffering or pretend it's not there. He speaks the truth about his suffering. In verse 2, he says, I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. In Hebrew, this is literally, I complain to his face. David is not shy. His faith speaks his pain powerfully to the face of God. And part of this complaint is confusion. Confusion between the apparent conflict between God's promise and the world around us. This is absolutely crucial. See, David, in verse 3, turns to the precise nature of his suffering. And we see it when we read, we read verse 3 and 4 together. In verse 3, he says, When my spirit faints within me, you know the way. So he quite literally there, it's when my breath goes faint. He's not talking like in a sense of spirit or, or soul. He's meaning just when my breath goes faint, when I am weak. God, you know the way. You're protecting me. That's good. That's true. That is faith. David confessing that God has promised to watch out for him, that God knows his steps. That's true. That's a basic confession of faith. God, you know the way. But then if you keep going, you find out that that actually creates a problem. In the second part of verse 3, he says, In the path where I walk, 
they have hidden a trap for me. In other words, God, you know the way and you know it's filled with traps. It's filled with snares. It's filled with dangers. So where are you, God? Why are you letting me walk away that is filled with treachery? And this goes on in verse 4, because in verse 4, he's, he's still talking to God, and he uses the imperative, look to the right and see. So in other words, you could say, look, God, look to the right and see. There is no one who takes notice of me. No refuge remains. No one cares. No one cares for my soul, or no one cares for my life. David is saying, God, you know my way, and yet it's filled with traps. God, you can see, and you can see that I'm alone. David does not mince words. He's blunt, and his candor reminds us that we as Christians do not deny the reality of suffering. We don't downplay it. We don't dismiss it. We don't pretend it's not there. We bring it to God before his face in all its heaviness. We hold up to him the conflict between his promise, his power, and our current loneliness and loss and fear and rejection. And I think sometimes that we are afraid to do this. I think we're afraid to bring the full force of our grief to God. We, we rather dismiss it and, and, and repeat something about how God knows better or God knows best and, and we don't know what we're doing. And so we can't be fully honest with God about our pain, about our loneliness. And perhaps it's because we're afraid of being fully honest with ourselves. Perhaps we're not sure that we can take the truth. Perhaps we're not sure that we can take the reality that we don't understand what we're going through. But faith trusts God enough to be honest about fear to be honest about loneliness, to be honest about disappointment and confusion. Not because we think we know better, but because we take God at his word. That's the crucial point. David says all of this not to be impious or rebellious, not to be uh, uh, cavalier, but he says it because he believes that God knows his way, because he, believe that God can, he believes that God can see. Because in the face of suffering, faith speaks to God its pain and its confusion and it confesses. It confesses that God alone is its salvation and hope. That's the next. We've talked about the pain and confusion, how faith speaks the truth of pain and confusion. But now we have to turn to how faith confesses that God alone is its salvation and hope. Because that's what David turns to do in verse 5. He says, I cry to you. Again, he's speaking audibly. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. See, David is again speaking out loud, using his voice to speak out into the world the truth that matters. For David has just said that he has no refuge. He said that back in verse uh, 3, or I'm sorry, verse 4. He has no refuge, but now he says, well, God alone is my refuge. God alone is where I'm going to find safety and protection. And because God alone is his refuge, God alone is also his inheritance in the land of the living. The idea of my portion in the land of the living really means that the portion of spoils that he get, that someone would get after a victory. David says, I have nothing, but at least I've got God, and that's enough. I've got nothing in this world, nothing in this life, but I've got God, and he's enough. Because, and that's okay, because God alone is his salvation. God alone is his salvation. He says this in a positive sense. He has no refuge, but he has God. He has nothing, but he has God. Well, now in verse 6, he turns to talk about how he really does have nothing. He really has no salvation in himself. God alone is his salvation. Verse 6, he goes on. He says, attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. The Hebrew here is something like, I am made nothing. 
Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. They are too strong for me. I'm weak. I can't fix this, God. So listen up. Save me. You alone can fix this, David is saying. You alone can rescue me, because everyone that's against me is too strong. I am trapped. I am weak, and I am helpless. See, David knows that God alone is his salvation. And he knows that when God acts, when God acts to save, as he promises to do, David will be able to do his one part in this whole affair. And that is in verse 7. Bring me out of prison. David sees his cave now as a prison because of all the threats, perhaps like we see our homes right now, that I may give thanks to your name. That's David's part. He gets to give thanks. He gets to look at how God saved him, how God acted, how God alone was the thing that got him through, the one who got him through, and David alone gets to offer thanks. Because God alone is our salvation, he alone is our hope. And that's what David begins to look to look forward when he talks about this day when he will give thanks. Because faith, when it turns towards the future, becomes hope. In fact, hope is faith simply stretched out towards the future. Faith looks to the day when God's salvation is fulfilled. And David does so at the end of verse 7, when he says, The righteous will surround me. The righteous will surround me, and you will deal bountifully with me. Now that is a little, the translation there could also be, uh, you will vindicate me. You will do right by me. Faith knows its present grief. It knows its present loneliness. It knows its present suffering and isolation, but it also knows that that will pass away. For God will vindicate his people and God will keep his promise. Because suffering know, or faith knows that no amount of suffering can outlast God, that the heavens and earth will pass away. But God will not pass away. His promise will not pass away. And in the face of suffering, faith speaks this truth, pouring out God's own promises into the void that separates us from him. And that's what David does. He looks forward to the day when righteous people will surround him instead of enemies, when God will vindicate him instead of him sitting alone in a cave. And the beautiful thing about this prayer is that we can go back to the story in 1 Samuel where it is and find that David actually got to see the day when God answered his prayer. Because as he was sitting alone in the dark cave of Adullam, God answered him. Because David's relatives hear about his plight and they gather to him. And so also many others, people who were consumed by debt or who were discontented or who were in distress, gather around him and make up a community, a community of 400 men and perhaps several women, Become, and these people become the backbone of David's future kingdom. The community that would ultimately lead him and help sustain him as he assumes the throne. And then this community would take his prayer from Psalm 142 and make it part of the book of Psalms. So that it could become the prayer not simply of David and alone in a cave, but the prayer of all God's people. Of all who find themselves lonely, grieving, and confused by the conflict between God's promise and between their present loneliness. But before we get there, before we ask, okay, so great, it's the prayer of all God's people, well, that doesn't yet mean that it's our prayer. We have to raise this question. It's great that God answered David's prayer. It's great that he gave this prayer to all of Israel. But why should we, who are not Israel, who have not been anointed kings, why should we presume to pray it? By what right do we claim these words as our own? And it's crucial that we ask this question because that only by asking it can we locate ourselves rightly in this prayer. For the mere fact that it was David's prayer doesn't yet make it ours. No, it becomes our prayer. It becomes your prayer only because it first became Jesus' prayer. 
Only when you've heard Psalm 142 as Jesus' prayer can you find yourself in it. And this is absolutely crucial because you must learn to hear Jesus praying Psalm 142 before you can pray it yourself. Only when you've heard Jesus crying out, with my voice, with my voice, sitting in the Garden of Gethsemane, kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying with his voice, Father, let this cup pass from me. As he cries out three times, bringing his complaint before God. Only when you hear Jesus cry out his confusion from the cross, calling God his Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Confessing his faith that God is his God, and yet this God who is his God has left him utterly alone, abandoned by all. He looks to the right and the left, and there is no one who cares about his life. He is walking the way of death, the way of utter loneliness, the road on which everyone else has abandoned him, and everyone else who hasn't abandoned him has filled his road with traps and snares, and no one cares for his life. Only when you hear Jesus in the midst of that dark loneliness, nevertheless confess God as his salvation, saying, into your hands I commend my spirit, into your hands I commend my life. You alone care for my life. As Jesus himself is overcome by the powers of death and hell, he commends himself into God's promise, God's promise to vindicate him, God's promise to show him to be the righteous son of God that he was. Only when we hear Jesus say, Father, forgive them, and hear those words, and hear in those words, Father, forgive them, Jesus' own confidence that God would not only vindicate him by raising him from the dead, but would surround him with a righteous people. People made righteous by the blood he shed for their forgiveness. People made righteous by all that Jesus is and was and said and did and suffered. Only when you recognize that you, you are one of the righteous that Jesus that has been gathered around Jesus, then you're ready to pray this psalm. Because that is where you come in. By faith, as a forgiven sinner, you are one of the righteous who surround Jesus. When we gather and kneel at the cross and trust that he alone is our salvation. By faith, you are brought into the renewed Israel that Jesus made faithful. By faith, you are gathered around this king whose paths to the throne led through the dark depths of the tomb. You, sinner that you are, you are the hope that sustains Jesus as he hangs on the cross, alone and forsaken. You are the, the object of his faith toward God, stretched out into the future, becoming hope. You are the joy, Hebrews says, that was set before him, that he might endure the cross and despise its shame. You are the future that sustains Jesus in the face of his suffering, because he died for you, because he is your king. And because he is your king who died for you, and because he is raised for you, because God vindicated him and has gathered you around his promise, you can now pray Psalm 142 as your own. You can speak to God the truth of your loneliness, of your grief, of the confusion, of suffering, of isolation, because you know that Christ has already done so for you and with you, and he speaks now through your prayers by the power of his spirit. You can speak the truth of God's salvation because Christ has already conquered death and sickness and hell and sin and promised to raise you and bring you into the land of the living and vindicate you forever in the glorious day of the resurrection. You can speak the truth that God is your portion because Christ is your portion. That is what faith does in the face of our afflictions, in the face of our loneliness and suffering. Psalm 142 gives our faith in Jesus words to speak, 
words to speak our confusion and pain to God, to bring before his face all of our loss and loneliness, and confess him nevertheless as our salvation and our hope in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now may the peace that passes all understanding guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ our risen Lord.